Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. Today, our guest is TJ Woodward, and he is going to talk about conscious recovery. Before we start, I just want to thank everybody who has left a review in iTunes and Stitcher. I really appreciate it. That's going great. We're having some wonderful number of downloads and new people signing up. So I really appreciate it. This information is getting out there and it's very exciting to see that happen. Also, if you want to leave me any feedback, just go to the website. There's a tab on the side. Please leave me any messages you want or any topics that you want discussed and I'll work on getting them on the podcast. That would be great. Also, if you'd like to comment on any of these episodes, please do that. You can do that on the website. I like to hear from people. I like to hear what people are saying and what they're thinking. And if you have any thoughts about any of the episodes, please go to the website, theaddictedmind.com and leave a comment and talk about it. Okay, with that, let's start the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is TJ Woodward, and he is going to talk about conscious recovery. TJ, you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story and kind of how this came to be and, and about conscious recovery? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dwayne. I've been working in the field of addiction treatment for a decade now, doing spiritual care at top tier high end treatment programs. I've also been in recovery myself for 31 years. I was so blessed to get into recovery young, just ironically, 54 days before my 21st birthday. And I've developed this system of care called conscious recovery that I know we're going to talk more about, but it's essentially how we view addiction and addiction treatment through the spiritual lens. 
Okay, great. I'm really interested in this topic because I think the spiritual life of recovery is such a big part of kind of finding that final recovery, that com- that place of calm. So I'm excited to kind of get your take on it and how you kind of came to this. So yeah, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. Conscious recovery actually started with a question. And that question was simply, what might happen if I were to view all the clients I worked with through the lens of wholeness and perfection, rather through the lens of looking to see what's broken? In the Western medical model, we look at symptoms and behaviors, mostly symptoms, and how do we eradicate them? Addiction is something quite different because Once I view addiction as the problem or the client as broken in some way, I have limited the capacity of the client's ability to heal. So I start with that question because I recognize that healing really comes from within. That's the holistic approach, meaning that it is an internal healing that happens. As a clinician, I'm really here to simply hold the space for that. And what we know in the quantum field is the observer has a profound effect. And so I started asking that question and looked at how I could hold a space for clients to access their own inner healing. And I've had just remarkable, remarkable results in working with clients. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that as well as as I've worked on working with clients and, and, and really gained experience seeing kind of coming from it from a different approach. Like you said, a lot of addiction is based in that I'm broken or something's wrong with me. And this really is the opposite of that. Yeah. And, and it really, what, what is powerful about this is we can start to view the addiction as not the problem, but the solution to something. Once we've viewed it as the solution to something, we can start asking the question, what is below that? What's beneath that? So conscious recovery is a program, if you will, or a modality that helps us get down to the deeper root causes that are driving the addictive behavior and recognize that addiction in, in its many different forms is a, is a solution to something. And of course, once we're starting to treat someone, we're operating under the assumption that at least on some level, that solution is no longer working. But it's a place of empowerment because then the client can say, yeah, I did use it as a solution for many years. Now it's not working What's underneath this and how do I break free from that? So, okay. So tell me a little bit, like, what does that look like when you say solution? What what do you mean? Can you go into a little more detail about like what that means when someone's looking at it as a solution or... Because that's a kind of a flip in how we think about it. Absolutely. And I know that it came primarily out of my own story because when I was seven years old, I had a profound experience and that experience was closing off and shutting down. Prior to that, I was a really happy child. I was in awe of the world. I was very present. I felt very connected to myself and the world. At age seven, something happened and I closed down, I shut off. And it's not that there was one event that happened, but I remember like it was yesterday, this closing off, this shutting down that happened. I walked around that way until I was 13 when I discovered alcohol and weed. It was the first time I got some relief. I felt back to a place of more presence. So I recognized in my own life that it was a solution that worked brilliantly So I've reframed coping mechanisms. I call them brilliant strategies. Obviously, they didn't work long-term, but it was a very short-term, a Band-Aid to some deeper wounds. And so that's really, that I think set my framework, that created my framework for how I look at addiction. And what I have discovered is clients, when they get that piece, 
there's a profound shift because it's no longer the problem. It's, oh, what's underneath all this? What was I trying to medicate? And let's begin to work on that rather than staying focused on the external or on the behavior. Right, right. And so what you're kind of saying is, is like the addiction became the solution for you for that deeper level of pain that you felt that kind of, that you were looking to get away from. Is that what you're kind of saying? Oh, absolutely. And in, in conscious recovery, both in my book and in the conscious recovery method, I look at the three root causes of addictive behavior. And again, this is through the spiritual lens. I'm not, I'm in no way denying that there's a physical aspect or a mental aspect. Those are important to address as well. Conscious recovery is meant to assist someone and work within whatever therapy or program or support group they're currently engaged in. And these three root causes through the spiritual lens are unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. And I would love to go more deeply into each of those. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, let's let's go into each one. Let's just talk about first one, unresolved trauma, because we were talking a little bit earlier before we started that, you know, what we found is that anyone who probably is struggling with addiction, probably has some kind of trauma in their life, some early childhood trauma. Absolutely. And, and it, it's not always identifiable because when we hear the word trauma, we often think of trauma like someone that has been exposed to uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Maybe they've witnessed a car accident. They had a parent that died. Or we think of someone that maybe goes into a war zone. And of course, all of those are trauma. And there's other types of trauma that are more subtle. Spiritual trauma is when we don't get seen as our whole and spiritual being that we are. We get downloaded messages. Don Don Miguel Ruiz calls it the domestication of the human. And I love that because when we domesticate an animal, we call it breaking them or breaking their spirit. So we come into this world as whole, present, spiritual beings And then we start getting programmed, usually by well-meaning parents, teachers that are unconscious. And parents often unconsciously repeat the messages they received. And quite often those messages are counter to spiritual wholeness. Yeah. And I I think even, you know, as you were talking about that, I was I was thinking about how our culture kind of identifies us, a a big part of our culture identifies us as broken or sinful uh, the moment we kind of come into this world. And this is this is a very different approach, which kind of says, hey, no, you're whole, you're good. You come into this world good and whole. And uh, I really like that. That resonates with me a lot. Yeah, thank you. It's a profound shift. I mean, obviously, I'm not the only person doing this work with addiction. And most people, I think, who come into treatment, for example, will at least on some level become witnessed as their addiction. And all we're doing is re-traumatizing, right? So 
it's, I think it's important for us to not necessarily get down and remember and revisit or re-experience all the traumatic experiences, but it's a recognition that at some point we had a traumatic experience that caused us, this moves right into the second one, it caused us to spiritually separate. So when I say spiritual disconnection, I'm not talking about a disconnection from the idea of God or a higher power. I'm talking about a disconnection from that essential self. Right. I like that statement. That's a very powerful statement to me. Yeah. Thank you, Dwayne. It's really, it, it really, it's again, it's life changing because if we can get to a place where we remember that separation, now some people aren't going to have the profound memory that I did that was like so clearly that day I remembered it happening. For most of us, it's more gradual. It's a gradual forgetting. We start to believe this is something that's new to me. We start believing the BS, the belief systems. I love that. We start taking on other people's belief systems. And in our world, in our culture, and certainly in our country, some of those belief systems are there's never enough. We need to compete. We need to be perfect. We need to push our way through life. A lot of times men get the message that they have to force their way through lives and be strong. So all these messages are really counter- to that, again, that spiritual wholeness. So as we come into recovery, there's there's a place where we want to learn how to reintegrate that. Right, right, and be able to pull that all together. And I'm wondering, because you said also you talked about toxic shame, and what is its role in this process? Well, once we identify, you know, what once we have this trauma, and then we have this disconnection, we develop quite often. And, you know, I would say only 100% of the time in the clients I've worked with, where we develop a sense in some way that we're broken. And of course, there's so many people working with shame now. I think of John Bradshaw in the 80s, Brene Brown, there's a lot of conversation now around shame. Shame is actually, it's quite simple to define. Guilt is a sense that I've done something wrong. Shame is a sense that I am wrong. And when we recognize that we're walking around with a sense of brokenness, we can identify that that's shame. And it usually shows up in the form of I am or I am not. I am not lovable. I'm not good enough. I am lazy. These things that have been concretized in our belief system, and we believe that's the truth of who and what we are. And of course, we know hurt people hurt people. And if I believe I'm broken, I'm going to experience the world as broken. And how it ties into addiction is if I'm walking around with that, I'm going to want relief in some way. We find some sort of substance, some kind of behavior, sex, shopping, whatever it is, and it brings some relief. And then we can become addicted to that substance because we believe that it's that that's bringing us the peace. And as we said earlier, it's only temporary and we know it doesn't work long term. Right. And that feeling of shame is such a painful emotion that just really, you're not worthy enough to be part of the tribe, so to speak. That's kind of how I see it. And that pain that comes with that is just so incredible. I don't think anybody can tolerate that for a long time. And and addiction, like you were talking about solution, addiction gives you at least that relief in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then once someone starts using drugs and alcohol, then it can become addictive. And none of us can absolutely define that line, but there's a place that we cross. Maybe that's where there's a physical addiction or a physical hook from an emotional lens. Maybe that's, oh, I finally have relief because quite often someone 
early in recovery, we've been so disconnected with our emotions. So part of the solution, part of how we move into recovery is learn how to be with ourselves. I think the most important thing, and we're kind of moving into the next portion of my book, I move into the second section, which is called breaking the cycle of addiction. And the first step with that is creating safety. Right. Creating that safe environment for people to actually start to talk about it. Yeah, and it's it's internal and external safety, right? Usually starting with external. That's why many people go to a sober, sober living environment. Many people need to go to treatment in order to create an external safety. Ultimately, what this, especially if you're, you're talking about trauma healing, this isn't about revisiting that, especially right in the beginning and re-traumatizing ourselves, like ripping the, the scar off the wound. This is about learning how to be in our bodies first, learning how to identify what's happening internally and the connection with the thoughts and the emotions and learning how to allow our nervous system to tolerate, if you will, not maybe not my favorite word, but be able to be with ourselves and create some internal safety before we move further in the recovery process. And, and is this where kind of that conscious, conscious recovery kind of comes into that area? Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because from there, we can start to unlearn some of those ideas, those beliefs that we have about ourselves and returning to this place of wholeness. Okay. So they kind of be able to create that safety and then sit with all that discomfort in a safe environment. And then what's kind of, what, what do they do next? How do they work through this process? The next uh, chapter in my book and the next, to me, the next phase or step of this is unlearning. It's being able to identify all of those things that happened and those beliefs that we've taken about on about ourselves and how we begin to unravel and unlearn some of those ideas and beliefs that we have that we're holding. A lot of my work I identify, and certainly again, not, not, I'm not the one that coined this, but core false beliefs, that shame that we spoke of. I think it's important that we start to unlearn some of those and question some of those. Those core false beliefs then then lead to looking for a strategy to try to find some relief, as we said. So beginning to unlearn and unravel some of those belief systems are an important first step. Yeah, definitely. And you had mentioned earlier John Bradshaw. I think I love his book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. It was one of the first books that I read about shame and it really just really hit home for me. And that process of kind of being able to feel love for yourself again. Absolutely. And that to me also, John Bradshaw's book was groundbreaking because I was deeply entrenched or at least surrounded partially by a group of people that looked at addiction as the problem, looked at people being broken in some way because they had addiction. This was something that was really different. This was coming through with the lens of like, what shame am I holding about myself? And then starting to question, is that even true? And that's why unlearning is an important first step. We start to question the ideas and the beliefs. We start to unlearn some of the things that have happened to us. A lot of us are carrying guilt and shame based on some of the behaviors we had too. Again, what we know is hurt people hurt people. So quite often the shame is, I've harmed so many people with my addiction. How do I ever make peace with that? A lot of times we start talking, how do I ever forgive myself for that? Because as long as we're holding stories and beliefs about brokenness and 
right and wrong and that we've harmed someone, all of that needs to be addressed and unlearned before we can really move move on in our recovery. And that, to me, is what drives relapse. It's too painful to be in our bodies, so we want relief. Yeah, definitely. And and I was kind of thinking, once again, as you were talking about this conscious recovery, because so much of the time what I've seen is that when we're in that active addiction, we're just so on autopilot, we don't even know we don't even know our belief system, if that makes sense. Like we're, we're, we don't even know we're operating by these beliefs a lot of the times. And that consciousness, that slowing down in that safe space creates that environment for us to actually look at this. Well, absolutely. And you're touching on another key point. I so appreciate it, Dwayne. Most of us are walking around really unconscious. Certainly people who are active in an addiction have a lot of beliefs, a lot of trauma, as we said, a lot of shame trapped in the unconscious, we have no idea that we're making choices, right? The way I say it is we're all choosing, but we don't all know it. So as long as it's trapped in the unconscious, it's running our lives, those unconscious beliefs, that that toxic shame that's in our system. As you said, we're not even aware of it. We're not even aware of how our core beliefs and our core perspectives are creating what we call reality. So for many people in early recovery, it's profound to even recognize that we're, there's so much trapped in the unconscious, creating a safe space where those can come up, where we start to recognize, oh, wow, there's all this stuff buried deeply in my unconscious or my subconscious that's really running the show. An important part of treatment, of counseling, of therapy, of support is being able to bring those unconscious beliefs into conscious awareness so we can start to question them and start to work with them in a very different way. Right. And I have another question. So when do you think for a lot of people is that moment where they kind of go, okay, what's going on here isn't, isn't working? You know, a lot of times we call it, a lot of times they, it's like hitting bottom or, or that's one of the terms used, but I'm just wondering like in this model, there's that that defining moment that people have and they go, okay, this isn't working. And I'm just kind of wondering about that. Yes, I love this question and I love this conversation because it's been sort of widely accepted that we need to hit bottom in order to uh, get into recovery. And although on some level that's true, I have seen, first of all, there's a little bit of mystery actually around what it takes for someone to have that moment where they're willing to let go of that and start seeking help or seeking recovery. But what I have seen consistently is that people reach a place of spiritual bankruptcy where the pain of continuing the cycle of addiction becomes greater than the pain of beginning to work on this re- some of our recovery and being able to work with the tools the spiritual tools uh, the emotional tools and even the physical in the physical realm i think it what happens is there's a place of deep spiritual pain and then through that hopefully if someone can get through that and recognize there is hope there is a possibility of recovery that place of surrender happens i send out a daily quote every day and today's i put them in in advance today's quote was nothing's more painful than 99% surrender that has certainly been true in my own life yeah, that's that's I like that quote a lot and that is that is so true. That is so true. And that and that moment when that's 
I think as healers, that is our critical moment, a critical moment of such responsibility when someone goes, okay, I need help. Yes. And what I have experienced is early in my work with people, I thought my, first of all, I was viewing them as broken in some way. I thought my job was to fix them in some way and to get them into recovery. Today, it's something profoundly different. Looking at them through the lens of wholeness, creating a space so they can begin to explore some of these deeper issues, have that moment where they recognize that they can in some way let go of some of these strategies and begin to do the deeper work. Then healing can really take place because As a clinician, I'm holding the space for that healing rather than thinking it's my job. First of all, it's people talk about compassion fatigue or they talk about getting burnt out working with addiction. When I'm operating from this place, this work is energizing to me. It's not depleting. When I recognize the person sitting in front of me is the one doing the healing, I'm simply creating the space. The work becomes energizing. I don't feel drained. I certainly don't feel burnt out. It's exhilarating. Yeah, I think it's 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 creating that really safe space. That's yeah, it's not draining. You're really connecting in a different kind of way, and you're watching them do do their own work in that safe environment. Yeah, and what that requires, and here here to me, this is one of my favorite conversations. It requires, as the clinician, that we're doing our own deeper work. We've worked through or are, are working through, because in some ways it can take a lifetime and it can happen in an instant. We're working on our own shame. We're able to create a space for the healing because if I haven't worked through my own trauma, my own shame, my own disconnection, I'm going to at very least unconsciously not allow the client to go deeper into that. I'm not going to be capable of witnessing that. So in order to create a safe space, we need to do that work. One of my favorite quotes is from Pema Chodron. She says, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between two equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of another. I really love that. And I actually add to it now, also only when we can be present with our own light can we be present with the light of another. I like that a lot. I have a question too about like if someone's listening to this podcast and they're looking for help, how what might be a kind of a sign for them that this clinician or therapist or whoever they're working with it has that space for them. Well, I think being able to ask, it'd be great. Wouldn't it be great to interview? Obviously, some of that can be edited out. (laughs) My stumbling there. For me, the important piece is to be open and receptive. And if I'm looking for a new therapist, it's great to go be in the energy, try it out, ask questions. What, how do you view addiction? How do you view healing from addiction? Really begin to open up to what you need for your healing. It's not going to look the same for everyone. Right. For me and my own journey, what's important in working with someone is that we have a relationship, a professional clinical relationship that is going to serve the client in this unlearning process. I guess really to to the bottom line is someone that you feel safe with. Again, safety, the most important piece. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, and there is that connection. And I would, if, if, I would encourage clients, if they don't feel that connection, to keep looking for help, find the right person that fits for you. I mean, it's so important. That connection is so critical to that process. 
Absolutely. And for so many of us, we grew up in family systems that didn't feel safe. So safety is so important because otherwise we might be replicating that family dynamic. And it it doesn't mean it's any fault of the clinician. It just needs to be a match for someone to feel safe. That's why I like working with a team. Someone's going to feel safe with me, whereas someone else is going to feel safe with another clinician, and people can find where they feel safe to begin this deeper work. Yeah, I like that too. We, we do the same thing at, at our agency, and, and so sometimes there's a fit, sometimes they're not, and sometimes they work with this therapist better than that therapist, and sometimes none of us can really know why, but it's just it's the right thing. It has the right energy. Yeah, and to me, that's the great clinical work. Again, when, I, when my ego's out of the way, and I can work on my own ego being out of the way, I can recognize that it's important that they are able to feel the vibration of safety with the person. So that may not be me. The power of working with the team is there's going to be someone there, we hope at least, that they're going to begin to feel safe enough to start doing the deeper work. Definitely. As we kind of come to the end of the podcast, what would you, if someone out there is listening to this and they're struggling, what message would you want to give to them? I think the message is to reach out to get help in any form. There's so many support groups today. There are so many wonderful treatment programs. The important thing is that we don't need to do this alone. I think people say, you alone must do it, but you don't need to do it alone. So being able to create safe community is such an important piece. And of course, we know that the important piece is reaching that place where we're willing to reach out, to ask for help, to find people that will support. Luckily for us, we know that addiction rates are really high. We also know that recovery rates are really high right now because there's so much awareness around helping people break this cycle. Yeah, so true. TJ, I want to thank you so much for coming on. How can people find you or get in touch with you if they want to know more about this and and, and your books and stuff like that? TJWoodward.com is the best place. You'll see my book, Conscious Being, my new book, Conscious Recovery, our spiritual community in Oakland. So TJWoodward.com. Okay, great. And I'll put that on the website too. That's going to be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 26 and I'll, I'll link all that stuff too so you can send me anything that you want to put there as well and I just want to thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation it's been really great and I and I really enjoy what, you're, what you've been saying great thank you Dwayne it's always an honor to be in this conversation it's my favorite thing so thank you for having this platform and this forum and all the great work that you're doing oh thanks alright everybody enjoy Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 26. I'll see you all next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of 
how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.